Welcome to season one, episode five of What Are You So Effing Afraid Of? A podcast sponsored by the Longevity Project for a Greater Richmond, where we share a multi-voice exploration of issues to promote longevity equity, disrupt commonly held myths about aging, and share some best kept secrets emerging from evidence-based gerontology. I'm your co-host, Ann Welliford, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Alexa Vanertrake and Nico Stankalescu. In season one, we're diving into commonly held beliefs, fears, and myths about aging, old age, and longevity. Myths about sex, myths equating old age with sadness, irrelevance, and isolation. So listen along and share with us, what are you so effing afraid of? In today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Gigi Amato, Assistant Professor in VCU's Department of Gerontology and Director of Research and Evaluation for the Longevity Project for Greater Richmond. Gigi's research interests include social connectedness, trauma and resilience across the lifespan, and the health and well-being of our direct care workforce. So let's jump in and pass it over to Alexa for her conversation with Gigi. Cool. I would like to give a warm welcome to our guest today, Dr. Gigi Amato. Gigi Amato is uh, the Director of Research and Evaluation with Longevity Project for Greater Richmond. She is also an adjunct instructor and community trainer with Virginia Commonwealth University's Department of Gerontology with interests in social connection, trauma and resilience, person-centered care, and the well-being of the direct care workforce. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Urban Planning, a Master of Science in Gerontology, and a PhD in Health-Related Science, all from VCU. She has worked in Richmond, Virginia's nonprofit community for 30 years, serving people with HIV and AIDS, people experiencing homelessness, older adults, and people with disabilities. She is a RY2 200 yoga instructor and an award-winning children's book author. Gigi now lives in the city of Richmond, Virginia with her family. So welcome, Gigi. Um, Let's start with a little bit uh, about, well, of course, this whole day is about you, but let's start with how you might describe yourself and the work you do when meeting people for the first time. I know you have a really diverse background, so how might you describe uh, what, what what you've been doing? Hey, well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited for this podcast and the conversation we're going to have today. And yeah. uh, I can't wait to see where we go because um, I know you <laughs> and I have had the opportunity to do a lot of this work together. And mm-hmm. uh, so it's going to be really fun. And, you know, I think um, I don't really have sort of this canned, reliable, regular way of introducing myself. I think it depends, you know, varies on the setting, the person, the place. Um, I think generally I would say that. I am a gerontologist, an author, and a community advocate who is particularly grounded in this place where I have lived since I was a child, Richmond, Virginia, Um, and uh, the history and the topography and the people here. And um, all of that really informs my work. You know, if you kind of just lead with I'm a gerontologist, it opens up a really wonderful opportunity. People immediately I'm sure you experience this too, Alexa. Mm -hmm. People immediately sort of want you to get on board uh, of being their team with helping them grow old well, (laughs) right? Like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. You're a gerontologist. You can help me. Um, (laughs) So so I I like to kind of embrace that. It's like, yes, what an opportunity. 
Um, and, and then it also becomes a chance to talk about um, and share how, you know, and that's not sometime in the future, it's right now that we're, we're all aging and this process of being and becoming human doesn't, who knows when it ends? Let's just say that, who mm -hmm. knows when it ends? It may not even end after death. I know, we don't know. No, we don't know. Um, yeah, so it depends. It's probably the short answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends on who you're introducing yourself to. I mean, if it's in the professional environment or if you're teaching a yoga class. Or right. I, I get a lot of people to say, what is a gerontologist? <laughs> so, sure. and yeah. that, that probably changes a lot for you. Uh, I mean, you wear so many different hats. So depending on what you're working on, your answer might be different too. Um, it might be. And you know what, yeah. like someone recently asked me, um, Hey, they said, Hey, I'd like to hear one day the story of how a person can be a gerontologist and a children's book author. And, um, I said, yeah, sure. Cool. That's the story for someday. <laughs> and, um, but I, I don't really think that they are separate. Um, I, I just finished a novel a draft novel that I've been working on for, Ooh, I think six years now. And I would say probably the most important influence in that book from my life has, is uh, the gerontolo gerontological lens. They really flow through the whole story, you know, it's, um, and there are many generations, many ages, many different types of people in the novel, but the gerontologist lens really allows me to be present as a writer with each character and their uniqueness and their specific journey and what that character needs in the story to sort of grow and change and transform in order to meet and, and fulfill the thing they really want, right? I mean, the bummer about being an author is, uh, you know, for the first few hundred pages, you really have to create these obstacles and <laughs> put them in the way of your character so they don't get what they want. Yeah. Uh, by the end they do. So I don't really think of these things as separate. In fact, I think one of the, one of the gifts for me as a writer has been returning to my education in the last few years and, and going through the master's program at VCU and really becoming and embracing a gerontological perspective, not only in like my community work, but uh, as an author. So I think all these things kind of are tied up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that they're not really separate right. writing a children's book and also getting a degree in gerontology, two degrees in gerontology. And what do you, I'm trying to think about how to phrase this. What do you think the, I guess the through line is between those two, two items, the, between the writing the children's book and then also wanting to study aging? You know, it, it probably would, I, I may not have been able to sort of see that through line as clearly a few years ago, but I, then again, I think that I probably could. I think the through line is connection, for sure. The mm -hmm. through line is social connection. I think that's always been sort of the space that I have writ written in from a fiction perspective. Um, and it, it certainly was kind of the doorway for me to enter into you know, a formal kind of academic journey. 
uh, into gerontology. So for example, um, you know, you read in my bio that I've worked in this community for a long time, and that is true. And probably one of the most um, sort of influential eras of my community-based work has really been since about 2015, um, when our region really aligned around this really specific goal of reducing social isolation. Um, so that was something that, that I'd, I experienced individually in my role as, as a philanthropic officer at a regional funder. More importantly, that understanding of a number of key players in this region's aging services network, BC Gerontology, what is now the Longevity Project, Senior Connections, our state unit on aging. You know, in 2015, we, we, we all really aligned. Initially, it was around, you know, the languaging of our alignment was around social isolation. And uh, for the last five or six years, this collective journey toward that, I think has made, help us to sort of take a regional turn toward, you know, understanding that social isolation is um, one aspect or one, one attribute of how we could describe an individual's um, connections, social connection to themselves, to the people around them, to their community, and honestly, I think to the earth. Um, so I probably, I might've gone far afield there, but it was no, no. really, really, I think that's that opening, which started at United Way where I was working because kind of in the big picture of that organization, in an effort to sort of strategically explain to the community what the needs are that we were investing in. Um, it proved initially to be sort of a difficult task when you try to ask yourself of, of all of the pieces of, of all the agencies and aging services, they at least initially seemed to have a different mission. Uh, home care, which is providing you know, care in the home, adult daycare, Senior Connections, the Area Agency on Aging, which has many different programs. Um, Project Homes, for example, that builds uh, ramps and makes homes accessible to the community. So one of the questions before us was, how do we look at the greater collective or combined impact of all of these? And, and so there was, you know, at the beginning of this, what I would call a social connection journey for us as a region, really looking at what, so what are these threads that connect the web of long-term services and supports. Um, and kind of just casting about for that piece that really makes the greatest impact. And, and it, it initially sort of seemed to be, well, one of the things that these, all these services and agencies do have in common is their aim to help people, mm -hmm. uh, support people and having you know, positive and strong connections with other people uh, late in life, because we know that's it's what we started learning how important that was, uh, not only mm -hmm. for their physical health and their like literal physical connection to the things outside of their homes, but, um, but to other people for social support and, um, and then, and ultimately how learning how um, all aspects of our health and our humanness really are impacted by our state of social connection, which 
changes like everything else, ebbs and flows in time and across our lives. Yeah, I so with social connection is, is discussed so much. It's such a, a big topic right now in, in a lot of fields, but especially gerontology. Can you, so can you share a little bit about how you would describe social connection and also what I, I guess responsibility these providers have in, um, in ringing an alarm for someone who might be lacking in social connection? Is it a responsibility to, for providers or who, who is um, responsible for that if they see someone who might be isolated? So I guess that's a two-pronged question. First, can you describe how, uh, social connection in, in, your, in your terms? Sure. And I, I really will lean into the research and evidence around social connection um, mm-hmm. and, and by describing how I interpret um, Julianne Holt Lundstedt's typology of social connection. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the, uh, she's made many just amazing contributions to furthering this field of, of uh, looking at the impact of social connection on our, our, person, our lives and, and our wellness. And I think one of the most important ones, and I, of course, she, she, she's probably most known for um, really establishing this direct pathway between aspects of social connection like isolation or loneliness and um, mortality. And mm-hmm. recent, she's recent, a seven cigarette lady. That's yeah, what, um, that's how Catherine just goes. Right, 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 right. It's that being in, being in a state of social isolation is equal in terms of a health impact negatively to smoking. 15 cigarettes a day or drinking six alcohol uh, beverages mm, mm-hmm. a day, daily. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, recently she also has kind of made a call to researchers to begin to broaden the way we think and talk about social connection, sort of recognizing that these different and separate constructs like social isolation versus loneliness, social support, social mm-hmm. inclusion, and exclusion are all slightly different and distinct. And yet, they are all linked and speak to this larger, broader umbrella term that she calls social connection. Mm-hmm. And so in her um, m- model, uh, she really tries to sort of index those, put these different constructs in a taxonomy. And uh, one thing about me is I, I love a good taxonomy, <laughs> yeah. whether it's a Dewey Decimal <laughs> System or the, you know, Ayers LA County 211 taxonomy mm-hmm. of human services. I often have made my own taxonomies. I just love you know, part of me is like the secret librarian as well. So, mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so a taxonomy, I think, is just a great tool to have in life. Yeah. And so this typology of social connection, really, she it's a, tax, ta- a taxonomy of these constructs. And the big sort of three branches of the typology of social connection are um, the structural social connection, looking at are there relationships and roles in place, um, and then the function of social connection. How well do these work, and how do I perceive that these uh, roles and relationships are working? Mm-hmm. So that might be where we would look at social support and loneliness. And then uh, she also then says, and there's a third branch on this typology, which is quality, the quality of my roles and relationships, and that uh, all all of these are important. So I, 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 I think, I actually think there's another one. So if I ever had the opportunity to have coffee with her, 
what I would want to say, ask her about is so, and so where does the environmental piece fit into this typology? So the structure, meaning roles and relationships, are there other people in place and how do they work in my life? The function and how well do these relationships work to keep me feeling fulfilled and happy and connected? And the quality, are these positive relationships? Is their relationship strain? Um, are they peaceful and content and you know mutually beneficial? Mm-hmm. So my question for her would be, but where, where does the environmental piece fit? Such as, you know, um, access via transportation or, um, you know, being able to really walk or get around, move around, being mobile um, in my environment. Um, How safe does the, my immediate environment feel? Mm-hmm. So that, that would be a question for me. It's like, is it a three part, a three branch typology? Yeah. Or could it be a four branch typology or because those environmental impacts tend to be maybe less direct or maybe because there's less research around them, but that was back. Right. Yeah. And, and what, what, uh, going back to the, the 2015 social connection, mm-hmm. um, research, that you uh, discussed earlier, when I was in grad school, we did a project with urban planning where we assessed neighborhoods in Richmond mm-hmm. on um, livability and accessibility. And mm-hmm. it wasn't, uh, I mean, it, there was a couple neighborhoods that I, I looked at where the sidewalks had a ton of, you know, it was overgrown or it wasn't smooth and there wasn't really anyone walking around. And that Mm-hmm. has to be a factor in knowing your neighbors or knowing your community or um, just being more active in general. And it, it it's, it, I mean, it's interesting how that's not something we think about, at least in my own life and the privileges I've been given. I've never thought, I've never, you know, needed a wheelchair. I've never needed to go, you know, down the street and not been able to. And it makes me think about how certain neighborhoods support social connection implicitly right. and some, and some don't. Um, right. right, right so I wonder right. if environmental is like a, almost like an umbrella or it's just, co- you know, cost of entry or something like it, right. I'm, I'm sure she has thought about this. So I wonder where that would fit. Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely, um, yeah, I think it fits. I think I probably just need to understand how it's distinct and how it's different. Right. Is that, uh, um, is it like you said is it this sort of underlying foundational piece that's just sort of implied and understood um, and I think there is some really exciting I think there's some really cool new directions that the research is taking that, that really is looking at the influence and impact of of our immediate environments like a neighborhood so for yeah, example yeah. There've been um, several studies recently, like in the last four or five years that are attempting to look at or measure um, uh, telomere length um, as it relates to different attributes of a neighborhood, like social cohesion, Mm -hmm. um, perception of safety, um, even things like litter, you know, crime And, uh, And some of those studies definitely are showing that where there are increase, you know, where residents perceive 
that their neighborhood is unsafe or perceive that there's a lot of litter or perceive that um, their opportunities for social engagement are fewer, um, that it is associated with accelerated shortening of telomeres. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think that as much as there's a lot of research and evidence out there, so there's a lot that we know, um, and I'm always just so surprised too at how much we don't know and how, you know, I think one of the real gifts of Holt Lundstedt's work around this typology of social connection is really this call to bringing many tributaries of research and evidence together, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's important to sort of um, speak to and hear the t- entire story as best we can. And yet there's just so many wonderful new branches that are, are emergent that I'm really interested to see where they go and how that might even expand our, our typology or our, our taxonomy. So for example, not just the, the telomere piece, but I was also just reading um, an, a study about this interoception and social connection. So interoception is our awareness. It's one of our senses that we don't talk about much, um, but our awareness of what's happening and what's going on in our internal body systems, right? So probably one of the most obvious uh, um, interoceptive tasks that we all probably clue into multiple times a day is when our bladder is full, we feel it, right? We Mm -hmm. feel that inside of ourselves and then we take some action. (laughs) And so, um, you know, so I think there's really some interesting work around the connection between interoception, our ability to be aware, self-aware of our internal functioning Mm -hmm. and the strength of our social connections with, with other people. Can so so that reminds me of the of the birthing dog. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, can totally. you can you you describe it so well? And I know and I know it connects to social isolation, and that barking dog is out more so when someone is chronically isolated. Can you can you walk us through that? I can do my best to okay. walk, walk you through that. I, I think probably just for your um, for your listeners, I'll also just point you in the direction of Daniel Siegel. He is a um, neuroscientist out of UCLA. And um, he has, there's a, there's a video, uh, I think it's, it's not TED Talk, but on YouTube, if you searched um, Daniel Siegel, hand model of the brain, uh, he does a better job of explaining it, but I will try. Um, uh, so, you know, um, essentially, our brain has many, many functions and they are all designed, right? To protect us, to help us um, thrive and survive. Um, One of those functions of our brain, which tends to kind of be, which is located in what I think Daniel Siegel would describe as like our middle brain or our Mm -hmm. limbic brain is our stress response system. So parts of our brain, like the amygdala, for example, is kind of always scanning the environment, looking for threat, physical threats, um, social threats, and um, anything that might present danger. And that's really important, right? It is important that we be able to interpret our environment and understand when our, our, uh, our 
our safety, our well-being is threatened so that mm-hmm. we can respond. And we, we would like the language we use for that a lot is fight, flight, freeze. Mm-hmm. It's important. So like, you know, I'll always share this story about how I was hiking one time along the James River and it was just this beautiful day beautiful blue skies and those big low cumulus clouds where it's just like wow how wonderful is it to be alive and on this river and, and I might even have like been singing to myself who knows <laughs> but I, I turned around to to finish my my hike and I went back up this little hill and I'm sure I probably was being like kind of loud and like exuberant uh, but as I got to the top of the hill there was a big black snake it was not a uh copperhead or cottonmouth I'm certain of it but it was in a big aggressive looking snake mm-hmm. and it was like up on its haunches I have never seen oh like 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 the images of it like up ready out. to attack yes I mean it was oh. just like up and its little head was up was like <laughs> sticking its tongue out oh my gosh I know, I, know. I thought I thought even though I knew it was a non-venomous I thought I'm gonna die right like I mean my, <laughs> and my amygdala really helped me it needed to work it, it understood, okay, this is a threat mm-hmm. and you got to do something here. Well, you know, so my choices were fight, flight, freeze, or befriend. And it's not that you really, I think when you're in that state and height of fear, uh, sit around and analyze your choices. I think you just do. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing I did, believe it or not, was I looked at the snake and I waved at it. And I said, uh, hi, hi. Hey, little guy. <laughs> And then I realized, all right, befriending is not actually going to work. Yeah. And then you I crossed just, that one off the list. I tailed it. Like, I just like, tailed it down this trail. Oh, you started running. I started running. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, so you, fl- like, you flighted. I, I fled. I started fled. running, <laughs> running, true. running as fast as I could. I, mean, I was sprinting. And in my mind, I was just like praying, please don't fling your body at me. Please. Oh, my gosh. Me. You know, even having this fear that the snake was going to just like somehow like lasso me or something. <laughs> But then after a minute, you know, big, deep breath, I sort of started walking more slowly. My brain kind of came back online and it was like, good job, amygdala. You did it. Yeah. So that we want that stress response to work. And that's what I would call the barking dog. Right. So when essentially we move out of our sort of high, happy brain that I was in, like making connections and singing and thinking how beautiful the day was. And then my amygdala switched on and immediately said, okay, behavior change, get away from the threat. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, like I said, I come back to my calm, resilient zone. So oftentimes when people experience what um, uh, we might think of as like chronic loneliness or just like a long extended period of being disconnected and dissatisfied with our connection um, and our feelings of being included and belonging with other people, what uh, John Cacioppo and Louise Hawkley found is that the brain begins to change, not unlike what happens if we are repeatedly and chronically exposed to trauma, psychological trauma or otherwise, that it, over time, if we are remain in these highly stressful, always activated environments where we are triggered repeatedly and don't have that opportunity to come back to our resilient zone, then our brains begin to change. And um, the description that Haw- Hawkley and Cacioppo describe is not unlike the same way we describe brain changes uh, with repeated trauma exposure. And mm-hmm. that is that the amygdala tends to, it, it can get bigger. 
um, because it feels like it needs to, like, whoa, there's threats in my environment continuously. I've got to always be on alert. Mm -hmm. um, so the amygdala be, can, can get bigger or engorged and the hippocampus, which you know is located on either side of the amygdala, as I understand it, and has this really important job of helping to reach up or can make these connections to our more critical thinking, planning, evaluating brain. Yeah, yeah. Which you could think of as like the wise owl, right? Mm -hmm. um, become more difficult. Yeah. That's that's so wild. And mm -hmm. so, and this all kind of connects to the vagus nerve, right? Oh, the, yeah. The like the vagus nerve, nerve where the ability to take, uh, ability to activate the vagus nerve, um, yeah, that might be lost if you're chronically stressed and you're not, is that, is that true? That's how I understand it. Okay. That, um, that the vagus nerve has an important role in stress regulation and in regulation of our body systems. Um, and so the vagus nerve is, uh, one of these really long, it's actually two nerves, as I understand it, that run alongside, uh, either side of our, of our brainstem through most of our body. And the vagus nerve is also sometimes called the wanderer. Um, that's the root there, vagus is wandering. Oh, I never heard that before. So you can kind of picture this, this sort of beautiful nerve system that's part of your parasympathetic nervous system, just like always there, wandering through your entire body. And its main role, uh, one of its big roles is to continuously be sending information back to the brain, particularly as it relates to regulating that stress response. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. And so while there are vagal medical vagal tone interventions, um, a lot of this healthiness and activation and helping our vagus nerve to sort of tune in are things that we can kind of do ourselves. So Here's an example. I had a couple of doctor's appointments this week and one of them, I got there was a little bit late. I was rushing around. I had to kind of run upstairs. didn't know where I was going. Um, and I sat down and immediately started looking at my phone and, you know, probably my heart rate was up. Um, I was a little bit stressed. It was a new provider. And they came in and they took my high, my blood pressure. Mm -hmm. It was really high, um, like way higher than it normally is, but I didn't really worry about it because I kind of thought, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm activated. I'm pretty stressed here. Mm -hmm. So then the next day I had another pair of doctor's appointments. See, I'm trying to catch up from all of my uh, deferment during the, the pandemic of not going to the doctor. And uh, same thing, I kind of get into the waiting room and I'm noticing I'm a little activated. I'm a little bit stressed. So instead of this time, instead of picking up my phone, I said to myself, hey, I wonder what happens if I invite my vagus nerve um, just kind of chill out, help me. You know. <laughs> yeah. So I sat in the waiting room <clears throat> doing um, equal parts breathing just within for five or 10 minutes, not looking at my phone, just inhaling to a count of five and then exhaling to a count of five. What did you notice? Well, I noticed that um, I started to sort of calm down. Um, I noticed that a smile just sort of spontaneously came across my face. I noticed that I started to feel better. And then the question I carried into the uh, exam room was, what will my blood pressure be? Mm -hmm. 
And um, it was dramatically lower. It was much more, it was more in line with what it typically is. And so that's consistent with the evidence and the research that really it is that slow extended exhale. In fact, some scientists have suggested, and there's you know multiple studies out there that uh, assert that the optimal, that really this is what's happening on the exhale is our parasympathetic, our parasympathetic nervous system, our vagus nerve is understanding that, oh, okay, all is well, things mm. are returning to normal. And then it's really the exhale on that breath, the slow extended exhale that begins to bring us back into regulation. So I think there are so many wonderful tools that can help us with that stress response. Um, one of them is breathing, slow, mm -hmm. extended breathing, and social connection itself. Um, Fredrickson and her colleagues, Barbara Fredrickson, I think from UNC, have really done uh, some work around understanding how positive connection um, can also help our vagus nerve to sort of tune in and regulate and um, kind of instruct the brain, okay, let's uh, chill on the stress response. Mm -hmm. We're coming back. We're coming back. And um, that makes sense because, you know, when you really do connect with someone through a conversation um, or listening or being listened to, it, it feels good, right? Yeah. It feels great. Yeah. I, I, sometimes I think they're just, it's one of the greatest feelings in the world um, to really be happy and connected and content in the presence of another human being or an animal or the earth or even yourself or your your higher power god in my case and yeah and there there's not really i i might i might be wrong on this but there's not really an algorithm on uh you have this many positive social interactions a day or a week and you'll add five years to your life. Right. Like it's kind of different for everyone. Yeah. How, what the benefits are. So it's really hard to prove it's, it's really easy to prove now um, why smoking is bad for us or why drinking is bad for us. And we obviously have uh, research that shows social connection is really good for us, but how much, I assume it varies person to person. That's what the research tends to indicate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it can be, um, you know, difficult to discern what, which interventions are, or, or which actions can help us to be more socially connected or to feel less lonely or less isolated. Um, so I think it's not only different for every person. Yeah. It is also different across our lives. Um, and given our experiences, but I think there are some things that we know and that are making sense. Um, one that I'm most interested in is how experiences of trauma, transition, and loss are associated with a, with a negative change or, or with increased um, loneliness and isolation or decreased social connection. And I think that has the potential to be um, almost used as a prevention model mm -hmm. um, for us. So, and I, I don't, I think there are many, probably many reasons um, for that. You know, one in the qualitative evidence, sometimes uh, you hear people describe 
how after a big life change, um, whether let's say, for example, someone experiences being a victim of a crime. And, you know, people, people may say, after that happened, I was really different. Mm-hmm. I, I changed. I just wasn't the same person. Um, and not everyone in my social network could understand that or could be present with me in that. And that made me feel disconnected mm-hmm. uh, from people. Mm-hmm. I think that's one piece of it. And then I also think that when we talk about really hard human experiences like intimate partner violence or um, elder abuse, we also know that isolation and social exclusion are used as tools um, to continue and to perpetuate abuse. So I think that trying to really understand from a sort of more of an upstream perspective, um, how people are experiencing trauma and transitions and loss in their lives, really, I think could could help us to understand an earlier an earlier risk warning. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of our work around social connection, be, because as your to your point, because these experiences are so unique. Um, to each of us. Um, A lot of the assessments and screenings rely on someone to be aware of what's happening in their social lives and to sort of be able to articulate, yes, I feel lonely, or yes, I feel like I don't, I'm dissatisfied with the social support. And so from my perspective, by the time we're asking those things, if I'm saying, yeah, I feel lonely. I feel dissatisfied with my social support. That's not really a true primary preventive question, right? It's, we might be in a prevention space in a secondary or tertiary way, like, okay, something has already changed here. I feel lonely. I feel isolated or I feel less support. So how do we prevent that from, from being worse? What What I'm curious about is whether there is work that can be done around these instances of trauma and transition and loss to get get ahead of that a bit Mm -hmm. to understand like all right I might not be at a place where I'm saying I feel lonely I feel less connected but if we look at what's happening in my life and I've recently changed I've moved to a new city I moved to a new home I have a new job and and I'm in a pandemic okay so that's four big things happening in your life um, so if we had some sort of schema or some sort of way of asking people questions about transitions and impact, like of life events and loss, does that offer us a way to begin to support people socially and support their social connection before mm-hmm. they feel lonely or before they feel, um, disconnected? It's just a question. I don't have the answer. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a preventative measure. Understanding someone, someone's history can be, you're saying can be an indicator for if they're, if they have a higher chance of becoming isolated in the future. I mean, I wonder about that, not only their history, but sort of what they're present, what are you experiencing kind of right now? Mm -hmm. I wonder if this is a long shot, but if the way people experienced the shutdowns last year and, and, and this year, if that 
was an, is an indicator of anything. I know some people used the pandemic to learn a new skill, learn how to play the guitar, whatever it might be. Some people really didn't have that tough of a time. And I'm sure it was a lot of it was their social structure that was already in place prior to the pandemic. Going into the pandemic, you had friends and family you could talk to on the phone or you already you know understood how to use Zoom or whatever. And, and then there was other people who had a really, really tough time coping with, with not seeing people every day. So I wonder what, what those are indicators of whether it's a person's um, resilience or um, I mean, the, the, everyone experienced some type of trauma during COVID, I think Um, whether it was what you were seeing on the news or what you were experiencing, or a lot of people lost a lot of loved ones. And I really wonder what, because it's not over and we won't really know the long-term effects of COVID on, on folks for a long time. So I wonder like how that's, how this is going to unfold, honestly. Yeah. I wonder. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm so grateful that you and I had the opportunity with our other uh, longevity project team folks to spend our, spend a lot of time trying to understand how elders in our region have experienced connection, um, you know, across the pandemic. Um, and I think what we learned is just what you said, it, it has been such a different and disparate experiences. Um, as you were talking, you know, what occurred to me was what we heard from the funerals, our funeral services providers and stakeholders that this has been such a difficult time, not only because of the losses that people have experienced with losing friends and family to mm-hmm. COVID, but that the particular nature of those losses have also really disrupted our kind of collective processing, our rituals, our really important um, events and moments that help us to transition yeah. through that loss. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah, I think what they were describing was this sort of collective or community state of um, disenfranchised grief and a grief that has no public way, grief that has no normalized way of expressing itself, of being validated socially, um, and of uh, having this sort of pathway where others acknowledge and, and help you to grieve. So when we haven't had our opportunities to have visitation and have wakes and um, funerals where we gather and celebrate and really take stock of our love and our connection with our lost loved one, you know, with absent those, we really are left without our usual normal ways to process grief. So I think that's a piece of it. Um, I definitely think access and resources are part of it. Um, and I think, you know, you mentioned resilience and, you know, for me, I think one of the things I've learned about myself and also um, from our work that we've done with Longevity Project related to social connection during the pandemic is uh, that we're, we're all resilient. Yeah. We're, we're here. We're all right. resilient. Um, and we are all really, I think, for the most part, kind of throwing everything at it. Um, and so for some people that has meant being heavily engaged with technology Mm -hmm. um, so that we can FaceTime our family and Zoom with our family or sitting outside. Um, But I also think that there are 
you know, sources of connection that different sources of connection that that maybe we we could help ourselves practice more that also can give us that feeling that we get from connecting with another person. So for example, you know, um, connecting to ourselves is also a part of our social connection. Yeah. Um, connecting to our, our, our dreams, connecting to what helps us to feel good in our bodies, what helps us to feel happy. Um, and, and it's not something I think that we are really have a lot of time or, or support in doing. And it's not even really self-care. It's just friendship. Maybe befriending ourselves yeah. is one piece. A deep knowing of yourself. Yeah, and that's where our introverts, which I am, you know, probably have a lot to help us understand, right? That you you can feel connected to yourself. And I also think that's part of what explains, you know, kind of why this can be so hard to your point earlier. There's no like 15 minutes a day, four times a week, right? Yeah. It all is really based on uh, you and not only your social connections but your connection to yourself and what you enjoy and how how you feel I think for many people during the pandemic a connection to the earth to nature and the outdoors was a was a, a grace um and I and I think that's a very real social connection as well um you yeah know, I know I come out of the pandemic with a much greater understanding of um my community who I live with every day right there's like a there's a murder of six crows in my neighborhood and every day I live with them and I love them and I count them and I know them. And, and we've gotten to the point in this pandemic now that if they don't have peanuts in the yard by about 10, they're out there on the limbs, like <laughs> calling at me. And, and so one of us will go out there and throw handfuls of peanuts and they kind of calm down. So the other day, right, for example, and this is a connection and it is a social connection to the planet. But so like the other day, I I was moving a little bit late and I asked my husband, hey, did you feed the crows today? And he said, no, I had a meeting on Zoom and I don't think they're out there. Well, let me see. So I walked out there with my bag of peanuts and I could see one crow over in the neighbor's yard, just sort of sitting there. So I stepped more deeply in the yard. I waved my hands. And um, the crow then sort of flew out of that tree across the street. And then a bunch of them came back. And by the time they came back, I was standing in the yard with the peanuts, tossed peanuts around, and then all six of them came or eating. So I kind of felt like, hey, that's a great connection. We we really (laughs) communicated there. Like I stepped out, waved my hands, and the crow was like, oh, there you are. You're late. Yeah. And then, you know, came back with with their friends. So, um, I think the pandemic has touched all of us, just like you said. And um, one of the one of the gifts of that, I think, for many of us is that we've had these opportunities to explore connection um, more deeply in in ways with like with ourselves, with with our higher power, with the planet. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of reflecting done in the pandemic especially last summer when everything was just still Mm. I mean it was everything the world it felt like the world stopped honestly and and I think it gave people the space and the time to um be in their own heads a lot and and also go outside a lot more (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I think the outdoors was. And if pets can be companions and Absolutely. and be a um, a support system socially, then I think swimming grows. <laughs> and so sure. can your backyard okay. and and the trees and tree bathing and all of that. So you've oh yeah, yeah. you've obviously um, dedicated so much of your work to social isolation, social connection research. Where where do you see your work going in the next few years? I'm pretty open. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Honestly, there's many places that I hope that it goes. But um, one of the things I've learned about my own career is that I think I have been well served by being open uh, to being on the path, committing to being on the path, and that the right project, the right partners and friends um, really appear or we appear, mm. you know, we, we kind of join up together. I'm probably most excited. I think right now about some of the work we're doing at VCU gerontology under the leadership of Dr. Ann Welford around the importance of narrative and story with regard to the direct care workforce, so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. personal care, certified nursing assistants. And, um, you know, the exploration of story and understanding deeply the experiences of the direct care workforce, not only on the job, but in their lives, I think is for sure directly related to social connection. Um, Social connection in terms of not only like those, the important role social connection plays in Mm -hmm. delivery of direct care, but also I think socially how the story of the direct care workforce is told and, and how it is valued and that creating these opportunities for organizations and even just sort of all of us to more deeply connect to the important work that is happening um, and being offered by PCAs and CNAs. That's all pretty exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you have done a lot of work with, with PCAs. Do you, so as I know for the Hearts of Gold Collective, a big piece for them was the shared experience of their of their roles. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember them talking about having just like a group chat of people going through something similar to them, mm-hmm. like change their change their happiness levels and their, their in their day-to-day lives and made them feel so much more connected. And so I think, yeah, I think on the media, as someone on the outside looking in to what you just said social connection plays a huge role between the provider and I guess the client, the person um, receiving care, Mm -hmm. but also, and that's, that's kind of more obvious, but then what about on the side of, of just the PCA or CNA side um, in their own community? I think it, it plays a huge role. And I, I mean, as we know, we can't, it's really hard for us to provide care to others when, we, when something in our own personal life is going on and mm-hmm. negatively impacting us. So if we're really stressed out and we feel really isolated and the role itself can be really isolating, mm-hmm. exactly. it can impact the care. Um, so it's also connected. Um, yeah. I, I, so I, we ask everyone this question okay, in it? closing. Okay. Um, I am very, very curious to know what your answer is. Um, so this is, uh, more of, I, 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 okay. I'm just going to ask it. What are you 
most afraid of in regards to your own aging, but most importantly, what are you most looking forward to? Because we are debunking myths in this podcast and we, but we also all experience fears in our own life. And I think it's important to identify our own fears to make, you know, cause I think a lot of people can relate to them. So what do you think you are most afraid of, but, and then what are you most looking forward to? Right. That's a good question. I love, I, I love this question. Um, I mean, honestly, the thing that I am most afraid of regarding my own aging has, is, is mostly outside of my control. Mm-hmm. It's not entirely outside of my control, but it is mostly, mm-hmm. and it relates to, um, environmental degradation, sort of this, uh, you know, the, the, the sickness and disease of our planet and how sustainable is is, is life and whether we as a hum, as humans are capable, able, and willing to make a turn. And we know that we can make turns, right? Right. There are some amazing recovery stories of like bald eagles and Atlantic sturgeon. So we know that when we put our minds to things, we can uh, reverse direction. So I worry about the planet and, and the state of the planet uh, over Let's say I'm 56. So let's give me 50 more years. So I'm yeah. be 106. Yeah. Um, so I worry about that. Mm-hmm. I worry about um, uh, societal unrest and, you know, that if we, if we really can't as a society get our heads around embracing all people and valuing all religions, all experiences, races and ethnicities and, and understanding that we have to, as a species, be able to celebrate the things that make us and our communities and families unique, that we're just gonna, you know, if we keep going in this direction and toward extremism of whatever ilk or brand, I worry about that in terms of like, so it's more like, what will the world be like when I'm 106? Mm. That's the thing I'm most afraid of, frankly. I mean, you know, if you're gonna press me like, Biologically, I'm probably most afraid of losing my bowels. That's probably the thing I'm most afraid of. Like, Ditto. wow, what happens if I can't control that? Like, how yeah. do I, hmm, how do I navigate that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, like, but it, it doesn't sort of bother me on a daily basis. But yeah, it's not like haunting your dreams. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you press me on it, I might yeah. say that. Um, the thing I'm most excited about is just, man, I'm just excited to have one more day. Yeah. Every day. I'm, ex- I'm, I'm, I'm excited about being able to, you know, like communicate to the crows in my backyard. It is breakfast time. Um, I'm excited about having one more day or many more days in partnership with my husband. Um, mm-hmm. With I'm excited about learning about my body. It's something that, you know, I feel like now at this stage of my life, I, I wish I had had this interest and curiosity about um, how to listen to my body when I was in my tens and twenties and thirties, uh, you know, but I didn't. So yeah, I'm excited about all the opportunities to grow and, um, and I'm excited that I get the chance just to keep trying to be better, a better person to other people. I love that Gigi. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us so much. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of What Are You So Effing Afraid Of? A podcast sponsored by the Longevity Project for a Greater Richmond, a multi-voice exploration of issues to promote longevity, equity, 
disrupt commonly held myths about aging, and share some best kept secrets emerging from evidence-based gerontology. On behalf of myself, Ann Welliford, and my co-hosts, Alexa Bannertrek and Nico Stankulescu, and the Longevity Project for a Greater Richmond team, thank you. We hope that you will join us again as we continue to disrupt common myths and fears about aging and longevity. So listen along and share with us. What are you so effing afraid of? <laughs>